This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform. And once again, I am here with Dr. Susan Kleiner. And we are trying to end 2020, right? Um, and there's <laughs> oh, yeah. so many differences between 2020 and all the other years that have ended previously to this. I, I expect maybe maybe since the Spanish uh, uh, the the Spanish pandemic or what was it? What was it? The called? Spanish flu. Yeah, yeah, Spanish flu pandemic, <laughs> right? So uh, that would be the only year that I could think that, but they weren't podcasts at that point. So you know, I think we're in safe ground. Um, so so once again, I'm I'm Paul from Eat Inform. If you're looking to get some help going into the new year, um, certainly you can go to www.eatperform.com, fill in your information, and then a coach can walk you through what a plan would look like for you, right? Um, given where you are in your goals and and needs at that time. Susan, can you walk uh, people through how they can reach you before we jump into the topic? Sure, Paul, thanks. Um, well, at my website, drskleiner.com, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com, uh, or on Facebook, I'm at Dr. Susan Kleiner. I'm also, uh, my handle is PowerEat uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. I am not the biggest social media maven in the world, but you can certainly find me uh, and my website can give you my email address. So all that works out super easy. Gotcha. So today I wanted to talk because um, we had a number of, of kids come home from college, right? Including my daughter who's been um, with us, which has been really nice. I, um, I, I suspect your kids have long been out of college, but um, this year college pretty much ended at Thanksgiving and then everything sort of went um, online. So mm -hmm. I know my daughter pretty much ended like one week after. So she only had like a real short period mm -hmm. that was online. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, uh, my other daughter, who is, um, she'll be a senior either this semester or next. Uh, she actually went into mid-December. So, so both of them are done, right? Um, and, uh, but, but you're seeing all these college kids kind of come home and walking with their parents and, and things of this nature. And the other day, uh, one of my neighbors who knows what business I'm in, um, she basically, said, hey, look, I, you know, I, I just wanted to have a private conversation with you. You know, my daughter went, um, who's, I'm, I'm guessing she's the exact same age of my daughter um, because they've gone through kindergarten and all this other stuff. So I've mm -hmm. known this kid forever, you know, and she's like, uh, so she went to the doctor and, the, and, and she's up like 35 pounds and, and the doctor you know, is, is saying that she's, you know, technically obese um, in, as it relates to categories and things of this nature and asked me if I had any opinions. And so I have a whole list of opinions and we can kind of go through that. I think um, one of the discussions that you just have to have in this scenario um, is the BMI discussion, right? Um, you know, I know Canada, as an example, they're trying to do 
calculate, you know, people in risk categories a little bit differently than um, what was formerly BMI. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, BMI is people personalize BMI in a way that maybe they probably shouldn't. I don't actually know your opinion on BMI. Um, and so I'm, I'm very interested to hear it, but I think that, you know, when, when you're trying to address things from a scientific standpoint, you know, there's, there's gotta be some, some consistencies and in that way, I think BMI kind of gets a, a bad rap, right? Um, but I'm open to hearing what your thoughts are there because whenever you start talking about, you know, um, th like this young lady, as an example, has every right to feel like she needs some type of intervention, right? And we can talk about what that intervention might look like after this, but I guess first we have to talk about you know, it, is she obese? What's the problems with BMI? Is it relatively decent as it relates to scientific data and things of that nature? So why don't you give me your opinions and thoughts? Thanks, Paul. Boy, you know, I, I'm never um, at a loss for an opinion. Um, <laughs> so in discussing factors like BMI, I think what their origins are is important so that it gives us all the same um, viewpoint to start with. And that is to understand that body mass index BMI, which is a mathematical formula of, of looking at your body weight to your height, rather than what we used to use was body weight for a height <laughs> um, in, in, as a, coming out of um, insurance actuary tables saying, well, at this height, people who weigh this much have this much risk of illness and death. And really it was more related to death than illness in those days. And, um, and that didn't take into account that people who were smoking cigarettes were at a lower body weight and people who were at a very low body weight would succumb to disease more quickly because they had no resilience or recovery capacity. I mean, it was just a mix up of what we understood as health parameters, as well as um, the influence that body weight and over fatness had. So they skipped forward generations and uh, came up with this body mass index, which is really an extrapolation from percent body fat. And so based on percent body fat categories and cut points, at what point of, of higher levels of percent body fat do people become ill? And then you they gave it a tier of, of you know, underweight, healthy weight, overweight, or obese. And, and they categorized those with those nomenclatures and then found a formula that would be more easily measurable out in the world, which is BMI. And so in saying that, in telling you that it doesn't 
really account for body composition, number one. It doesn't account for your genetic disposition, meaning that there are plenty of sort of what we would talk about in as visually bigger, more robust looking people who are very healthy at, at a higher body weight um, and maybe healthier at that body weight than at, than at a lower body weight. And still, of course, recognizing that a, a massive amount of the population is unhealthier the higher their percent body fat goes above what is considered a healthy level. And so, so none of that is taken into consideration. And how, how big you are or how fat you are, that language in particular does not address health. And when we talk about obese in the medical setting, we understand that the underlying um, uh, meaning is to address health. But in the public arena, it's a visual aspect. It's got to do with aesthetics. And, and that is not the kind of information that empowers people. And so in calling a young woman obese, it doesn't empower her with any information to help motivate her to change if she needs to. And so in this case, what if she went to college 25 pounds underweight and she gained 35 pounds and now she's actually healthy? It just doesn't address any of those very important issues. And so that's why a physician is important in not just measuring body weight uh, and then pointing out a number on a chart, that's your BMI, but in measuring what are her cholesterol levels, what's her blood pressure, um, how is she emotionally, um, is she, how is her breathing capacity and her lung capacity, what's happening with her, what's she doing for exercise, all those things are outside, the, the clinical levels are under the purview of the physician, but all the other factors are not. And so um, that's why registered dietitians exist. <laughs> that's why, yeah. you know, we need other, other specialty professionals to address this in a holistic way. So I think that that's a great jumping off point from the discussion that that I wanted to have because you know I I wrote this article it's clearly resonating you know with the internet a lot of people um, feel like a lot uh, when when they made that change right you you go from high school you're you're walking everywhere you may be doing PE you're more active than you normally would be now you go to college you're not necessarily, you know, the same level of active, you have access to all manner of foods, whereas, you know, in your household, you, you might not. And it was interesting, because, uh, you know, I'm obviously seeing the young lady walking around, um, you know, it's just so interesting to see someone that you knew at four years old, you know, be basically 20 years old, right? And then they grow into like their mom, <laughs> you, know, <Right. laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 um, and I know that, that, you know, that's a generalization, 
Um, but but judging from what I know with this this young lady, um, she has a fondness for her mom, you know. And and I think from a genetic standpoint, you know, I, th- I think you're making some good points. I, I, I just think that people are, are overly dismissive of BMI um, to suggest that it, it plays no role. I feel like that is often convenient, right, for people that do need a little bit of intervention, maybe not, you know, this major league thing. So I'll walk through that in, in my list. So, so number one on my list of suggestions for this young lady was to start from a place of love, right? Um, that, that, you know, the day before she got the information, how did she feel? You know, um, when she looked in the mirror, was she happy, right? When she's taking selfies with friends, was she happy? You know, um, and and just kind of judging from the conversation I was having with her mom, uh, you know, she pretty much agreed that, yeah, she just doesn't really have any negative relationships um, in, in that regard. Right. And and so I think if if you're kind of feeling judged by, you know, the medical community and and like you said, you know, insurance companies and, and things of this nature, try and separate that a little bit, right? They're just kind of using that data for, for theirs. You know, um, you know, certainly I know it, as an example, in the case of my wife, who is the descendants of Swedish farm girls. Right, right? I know like, you've talked about that. I've yeah. said this many times that, that um, you know, she goes to the doctor and, and she blows them away. And of course, on this scale, she would not be favorable, but, but um, she would certainly be an outlier. I think a lot of people listening to this, especially if you're athletic, you know, would be an outlier and, and, and just kind of keep that in mind, right? That, that you know, weight in general um, is a data point amongst, amongst, lots of data right. points right? right and so if if we're starting from a place of love you just go farther right uh we we've we've said this before i think lee peel was the first person that i ever heard say it and and she's kind of a mutual friend of both susan and i uh, more of an acquaintance for me but um you know she said that that you know it's rare to see someone hate themselves lean Right. You go much, much farther. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you have a much better relationship. So so that was number one. Start with love. I assume that you agree. Do you have anything to add to number one? Uh, he, I, what I really liked um, that you said was how did you feel about yourself the day before you went to the doctor and you heard this information? Nothing changed um, about you the day before to the day after. Um, nothing in, in who you are, um, you know, in total. And, and so to, you know, I don't know, everyone may not be happy with themselves. I'm not saying that they are and that going to the doctor is a bad thing. Going to the doctor is very important. Um, uh, not to take away from the essence of personal health care, but I, I think that's insightful um, of what anyone can say to you 
a doctor or otherwise to make you feel bad about yourself and cut your, cut your journey off at the knees before you even get started. Well, and the one thing that, that I'm, I'm relatively certain, you know, your kids aren't that much older than my kids, um, that, you know, these, these uh, places often have counseling, right? And so if, if you're struggling with that love piece, right, it might be time to check in with a therapist, right? And, and most of that is, is free, Right. Um, right. Through a lot Th of colleges. Through a lot of colleges. The problem right now is that the counseling centers at the colleges are overwhelmed. Yeah. And so you, you sign up for an appointment and you may say you're an emergency and they say, OK, for an emergency, we can get you in in two weeks rather than six. So to also seek um, help in the community, there are often um, centers that have sliding scales, or if you are under your parents' health insurance, um, can take that health insurance to, to reach beyond, if it's, if it's not available at school for any reason, uh, not to stop there and think that now you're at a loss. Well, in online counselors, you know, exactly. I, I've, been, I've been pretty open about the fact that um, I go to a therapist um, every two weeks, and, uh, you know, we, we meet online. Um, it's going to be interesting because I'm going to be traveling. So we, the, because she's registered with the state of Minnesota, you know, we'll, we'll just be taking a break. There's no real, you know, issues there. Um, but, uh, there are counselors online that are registered in your state or registered in multiple states that, you know, you can find, I, I don't know, other than just a simple Google search, but there, there definitely are startups trying to solve this problem. Right, right. That are doing a good job. So number two is, are you active? And now I think activity is subjective, right? Like when you think of a high school student, the majority of your activity as a high school student is just walking through the school, walking with your friends, right? All these different things that kind of keep you active. And most of the things that you would consider to be activity are actually just, just fun stuff that you do as a teenager. I think when you get to college, you know, like I mentioned, you know, Domino's pizza is more accessible to you. Taco Bell is more accessible to you. All these things that that you can sort of get wrapped up into. Um, and then the activity piece doesn't go up. It's always been interesting to me, like when they did the starvation studies back in the 40s, you know, um, the Minnesota starvation study was the baseline of the, the farmers that were part of this starvation study was 3,500 to 4,000, right? And so these were very active people. Teenagers tend to be much more active, you know, and, and, and what happens, especially as it relates to athletic coaching or athletic advice or something of this nature is often you have coaches that don't have a level of understanding related to nutrition that maybe Susan and I have. Um, I don't, you know, I think you can take this list and apply it to a 15 year old 
and that 15 year old does not need Susan or I, right? I think, I think, you know, pa- parents panic too quickly, right? And, and, and probably need to be more encouraging just related to activity and finding things that that, that person likes. But, but truthfully, um, you know, are you active, right? Are you doing things that you enjoy? That's certainly a piece that, um, that I think can be helpful in this discussion because literally six months ago, right, you were fine and 30 pounds less and things of this nature. So you have to kind of analyze, okay, what changed, right? Right. Now they're growing into their adult body. So that's a little bit of what changed also, right? right? And, and you have levels of growth hormone and, and you know, everything's anabolic, right? And, and, you know, I think that as, as parents, I mean, what Susan said was so brilliant. Maybe you were supposed to be 25 pounds more, right? And, and, and that's something that I think par- parents often don't consider because they put their preconceived notions onto their child, right? Right. Um, and well, so, and so just, to, just to, to think about a couple of things that, you know, um, back to that, how many, so I do have daughters, 28 and 24 years old, and I am not that far from remembering them in high school. And the girls who were clearly in either sports that required uh, a, a controlled body weight, it was a body image, uh, an aesthetic, whether they were in gymnastics, whether they were distance runners, um, that, re- you know, they had coaching that believed that the lighter they were, the stronger they'd be with their running, uh, you know, numerous things where many of these young women were definitely at least 10 to 15 pounds underweight. And had they been um, more muscular, <clears throat> they would have been probably better at their sport, even and certainly better prepared for a healthy life ahead. Many of these girls, as you know, don't get their periods or their periods come and go. They're very unhealthy. Think about also, you know, the the classic underweight of cheerleaders and and um, and in all those different areas where their body image is so critically important, and they go away to college and they get out of that community and get into a different community, and maybe they do put on maybe we don't say thirty five pounds, but ten pounds or fifteen pounds they do look different. It's noticeable. They're actually probably healthier. Um, Ideally, they've put the weight on eating healthy foods and doing healthy things. But even so, they come back home and now the whole community goes, oh my God, like what happened to you? And so so there's a whole lot to deal with there. Um, In our house, as you said, you know, to the first thing is to love yourself. The second is to recognize how you feel. That was always the driving force to me. Your body weight is 
it, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about your health and your fitness, but thinking about how what you're doing makes you feel and whether or not you even remember what it feels like to feel really good. Um, aside from feeling really good because you just ate a you know, half a chocolate cake in the moment or, or a half a pizza in the moment, it's, it's the, the feel of I'm, I'm ready to get up, get out of bed and get going. I feel rested. I feel, you know, clear in my head. How does what you do make you feel? That was always the driving force and um, sort of imagery that we talked about in our house. And the second thing is that there is very famous research that was done um, in the late 80s and early 90s by Dr. Stephen Blair at the Cooper Institute in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and Dr. Blair was really interested in can you be fit and fat, he called it, for the same reasons that you talk about your wife, Paul. So Dr. Blair comes from a family of people who are kind of square looking. <laughs> There, there, there is, as you know, uh, I guess some people would say as, as tall as they are wide. And, um, and yet he was the, an exercise physiologist doing research on cardiovascular disease and fitness and really interested in would someone like him, who was kind of destined genetically to have a certain body type, would he be able to be fit. And so he did this research and what he found was while it is undeniably a minority of the over fat population in the country, <laughs> that there certainly were people in his study considered over fat, maybe obese, that exercised every day, could keep up with anyone on a, on a good robust hike that could get on a bicycle and go, they could lift weights, they could do all those things, all the parameters that he measured showed them to be healthy and fit. And so remember that those people are out there, but it does require that they are active. You're not gonna be healthy and fit whether you're at a healthy body weight or you're overweight, a high BMI or a healthy BMI won't matter if you're not moving. So that's, you know, that's a whole other podcast, right? Like the, the idea, but uh, I actually did, you can, you can search it. Um, I did a podcast with Stephen Blair um, and we talked about this and one of the basic ideas, right? It, that I think a lot of people stumble over. This was something I stumbled over many years um, was when I would undereat. I didn't have the want to be super active right, and right. things of this nature. And so when we looked at, and, and it was interesting because he was so interested in my story because of how I did it, mm -hmm. right? Because for, for basically 10 years, I, you know, would be so aggressive with the calorie deficit that, it didn't allow me the want or, or really even need, right? Because, because I would thought, well, I'm losing weight, so I'm fine. Right. 
And so the discussion that we had and the discussion that I think is really important for people is that if you start with your weight higher and increase activity, it, it actually shows you the much better path to have a healthy way of doing it, mm-hmm. but also like, you know, how to kind of tweak the levers. The simple fact is this, if you're overweight, and you're inactive as opposed to overweight and active, the overweight and active person has a much longer lifespan, health profile, things of this nature. So starting there with that place of love is really important. And I, I think it's really important that 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 gets brought up to a, a child. And just, um, just, just one more little thing on that so that you know, in my practice, when folks call me and say, I don't exercise, I hate to exercise, I need to lose weight, I want to lose weight, can you help me and write a diet for me? And I say no. Um, because the goal of my, my practice, my goal in my, inside my own head as a practitioner is to help people with lifelong success. And I know that if you're not active, you'll just be going on another diet to go off one because as Americans, we are experts at doing that. And and that's a waste of your time and my time. So to come into my practice, I want you to find something active and I help them find whether it's a trainer or the local Y or get a dog, do something so that you even walking counts as you said, Um, but you do it religiously. Uh, at, you know, a minimum of four times a week for three months. If you do that, call me. And, and once you've incorporated that regular activity into your life, then I know how to help you. And because and, anything else really to me is a lie. It, 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 the activity is so essential. And, and I don't know how to help you with a nutrition program that will stick for a lifetime. So, so so getting active first in my 35 plus years of doing this, finding activity first leads to, I think, in, in what I viewed as more successful outcomes, because by then you've accomplished something that you never thought you'd accomplish, number one. So you're already a success. Number two, you've actually changed your brain because you've changed your biochemistry and in your brain. And you're more likely to now really want the next steps, so to speak. Yeah. So I mean, that so was this very that was, important. That was big for me, right? Once, once, you know, I, I was I was pretty much eating the same. At this point, I just decided, you know what? I tried that for ten years. I'm going to try this. And once I did, naturally, quality of food came into play because mm-hmm. you, you're you're like, well, why am I doing all of this? And then, and then not, not fueling my body properly. And so that's number three, right? The number three is don't eat less. You know, the, the point being that, yeah, maybe you might want to be a little bit more conscious of the Taco Bell and Domino's at 1130 at night and things of this nature, but quality of food can really help a lot in this regard, right? So you're staying active. Um, you're starting from a place of love and, you know, you're, when you 
go to the the cafeteria and you have your meal plan and things of this nature, you're mixing in more salads because you're trying to stay conscious. And we'll talk a little bit about data here in a bit, but college students um, in, in a lot of cases really do have good food options and, right. and in a way that, that a lot of people don't, right? And so um, that would be my suggestion and, and, and strong suggestion. And it actually goes, um, it, it really helps when I add in the other things, but, but I would strongly suggest to not eat less right out the gate. Let that activity portion be the lead, right? And when we talk about, you know, uh, Susan was talking, I think a lot of people listen to this podcast and they, they hear eat to perform and they think, okay, he's talking about weight, lifting weights and turning on my beast mode switch and stuff like that. No, 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 no. I'm talking about walking. I'm talking about gardening. Start with the things that you enjoy and then we'll refine as we go, right? But staying active, you know, I think you, I, I don't personally see how Susan is active. She doesn't really see how I'm active, but I suspect that it looks a lot more like gardening and walking than it does the beast mode switch, right? <laughs> and, and I think if you're listening to this podcast and you, if, if you want a message that'll resonate, that's the message I would like to give you. Um, so I'm assuming that that one is, is good. We can move on to number yep, four. Or do yep. you have any thoughts? Nope. Okay. Number four is get more sleep. I know that it's really difficult when you're in college and there's so much stimulus and you have a, a roommate and, and, and things of this nature. And once again, you know, as we're walking through this list, we're, we're trying, I'm, I'm trying to talk to an avatar of a 19 year old person, right? But all of these fit for a 15 year old boy and they fit for a 45 year old female, mm -hmm. right? That, that the basic foundations that you need to succeed, you know, number four is get more sleep and, and, why? Why do you need to get more sleep? So I have a friend of mine who's a, a um, insomniac, right? And he's been struggling and we've had various conversations on how he can sort of fix it. And, 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 and part of the thing that I'm trying to work with him on is that he works out every single day, right? And it's very intense working out um, through insomnia. And, and right now I'm trying to get him to pull back a little bit right? Um, because the, just the amount of anxiety that you feel when you throw additional stress onto that is not going to help your sleep. As someone who does struggle with sleep issues, you know, it, it, it kind of sucks because when you struggle with sleep issues, you, you struggle with them because you're excited and then you struggle with them because you're anxious. And I always thought to myself, like that doesn't seem fair. It should only be one, right? Like, like if you're excited, you should be able to get good sleep. Um, if you're anxious, I guess it sort of makes sense. But, you know, when we talk about regular bedtimes and things of this nature, typically you won't associate that with a college student, but it does matter. Right. And, and I know that a lot of them do have some flexibility related to sleep. I mean, the whole concept of 
I slept like a baby last night. Anybody that says that has never been around a baby at all or <laughs> never has been around a teenager. 100% the saying should be, I slept like a teenager last night. Teenagers can sleep like it's their superpower, right? Use it as often as you can. And um, just, to, just on to, to, yeah, um, and I know it's something that you do is napping. And so I, um, I work with a lot of collegiate athletes over the years. And, you know, certainly there's always the sort of high level elite athletes at, at large universities where they have their own dorms and, and there's a lot of um, commonality of roommates where they try and uh, coordinate their schedules so that they do get their sleep. There's also lots and lots and lots of athletes who don't have that kind of situation. And they're more like any other college student. And what we have found is that while dorm life or even apartment life can go into the wee hours, and so it is hard to, to get to sleep at a at a very regular hour um, because it's either noisy or, um, or someone's studying and lights are on or whatever. In the middle of the afternoon, maybe after lunch, if whatever your time is between classes where you have a few hours, it may even be in the morning, the late morning where you have a few hours, go to sleep where, the, where the, the surroundings are quiet at that time. Most people aren't around and they take great advantage of that time. And napping is critically important um, really for everybody, but it is especially important for those who struggle with sleeping a full, you know, for, for a kid 18 to 22, eight to 10 hours a night um, or an eight to 10 hours of, sleep added up together is, is important. Well, people will often say, well, when I take a nap, I struggle sleeping. That's mostly as a result. I know this isn't going to sound very scientific, but that's mostly as a result of the fact that you're actually sleeping in the middle of the day. You're not necessarily napping. Napping, you know, for me is, is 30 minutes is the longest, especially if I'm short on sleep. Really, I like to kind of keep that at 15 to 30. And what it does is it sort of evens out your sleep a little bit. What, what often happens, and this is through years of trying to solve, you know, my sleep issues. Um, the one thing that's really super important for me is a bedtime, right? And, and you know, I used to joke about it for, for the longest time you know, I always blame John Stewart, right? Because um, I would stay up, I would stay up to watch John Stewart. And eventually I had to like, stop my habit of watching late night TV. Because, you know, why would I watch late night TV? Well, because it relaxes me. There's nothing more relaxing than sleep, right? <laughs> sleep is inherently relaxing. So, so the biggest actual thing for me uh, has been podcasts, right? Just listening to a podcast um, as I'm going to sleep, setting it on a 15 minute timer, game changer for me as it relates to my sleep. But, but 
what I want to say is all the people avoiding naps, what you're doing is you're, you're going to bed overtired, right? Mm -hmm. So you get to deep sleep faster and then you wake up earlier. You see this a lot with people take, m taking mega doses of melatonin, right? Is that, that it, it increases their deep sleep almost too much. And then all of a sudden they're waking up at 2 a.m. feeling like they got a good night's rest when in fact they haven't got a full eight hours, right? Mm -hmm. And once again, you know, we've done podcasts on sleep. You can go back and search those, but there's a lot of people that think that five and six hours, especially if you're under eater, right? Or maybe if you're low carb and, and maybe cortisol levels are a little bit higher than, than they should be normally, you might think that five or six hours is, is fine. Um, and, and you're like, but I'm awake most of the day. Um, and it, it's totally fine. Yeah. That's a little bit cause you're kind of wired out of your mind <laughs> because you haven't had food. Um, and, and you know, you're, you're kind of working against your own body chemistry at that point. And, and once again, you know, we're, we're trying to walk through a lot of things, but, but a lot of these concepts, you can get real deeper into a lot of them but we've covered many of them. Just search for those through the podcast and I think they'll be fine. Um, this is actually a bigger one than most people think. Um, and it's making sure that your protein is right, right? Um, it's obviously very common to, you know, if you're really a child still, right? You're 19 years old, um, it was, I, I want to back up for a second because you mentioned something about not necessarily gaining 35 pounds. So the, the person in question, the young lady, um, she kind of viewed her weight as 130, right? And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but, but she didn't necessarily gain 35 pounds. She just didn't really know what her weight was. Right. And so, so that's something I'm going to mention here in a second. Um, but protein when you're looking at, you know, let, let's talk about the people that think they're an outlier, right? And that their BMI, you know, is because they just have so much muscle, right? And, and not a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. and, and that's easy to prove, right? You can, you can go get your body fat tested and things of that nature. And even if those are off, they're typically not off by 20%. Right. right. They're off, they're off by three to 5%. And so you can have a, a general understanding of where you are now for women, you know, like uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but, but when you go the, the difference between men and women is roughly 10%. Right. So um, when you're seeing these body fat scales, on the wall. Once again, this is going to all seem like a judgment, but it's really just scientific data that we're trying to make heads or tails of. If you want to know the real information on whether or not you're healthy, go get your blood tested and, and then have a discussion from that standpoint. But really you need to be looking at like 10 to 15 pieces of da data rather than making some of these huge judgments. And Oh, by the way, um, like the last thing I'm going to talk about is one of the reasons why you make those judgments, 
right? And I'm not going to say what it is, but I'm just going to tell you that that some of the list that I'm working through right now is being done on purpose, right? It's being done in that order. Start with love, start with activity, you know, be conscious of quality, start, look at your sleep. Protein is not insignificant, right? When you're looking at USDA regula uh, uh, USD, um, regulations or, or suggestions, they're very low. It's basically the minimal thing that you can possibly have to, to potentially hold on to muscle. So if you're in a growth cycle as a 19-year-old or, or say a 15-year-old boy, and the majority of your intake is coming from fat or the majority of intake is coming from carbs. And let's dispel this myth for once and for all, right? Is when we consume calories, the carbs with the fats are the ones that taste so good, right? <laughs> like the, it's not this idea that you're over consuming refined sugar Right. Or or like one time I, I heard Gary Tobbs talking about about uh, um, carbs and he kept mentioning potato chips. And I'm like, Gary, <laughs> carb, uh, potato chips have so much mostly fat. fat right. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's if the, you can only have 10 potato chips. <laughs> yeah. And it's, for 100 calories, it's not coming mostly from carbs. Yeah, it's the it's the fats with the carbs that make them so consumable and then the sodium and, and, and things of this nature, right? So people in general, you know, I know for me before I learned all of this, not very conscious of protein. If I was getting, you know, 80 to 90 grams a day, that was a really good day, mm -hmm. right? And then all of a sudden you start to realize like as a 180 pound man, you know, you really want to probably be in that, you know, 135 to 150 as a minimum, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so now all of a sudden, like, my chicken bill is ridiculous, <laughs> right? Because in the last 10 to 12 years, obviously, I've had to become more conscious of that, right? right. And so um, protein is not insignificant. And, and let me also say that your I just want to reach out to a lot of teenagers that are vegetarian, right? I support you. Susan is not against you either, right? But it doesn't mean that you still shouldn't be conscious of protein, right? And there's this movement within vegetarian of, yeah, you don't really need that much protein. No, you do, right? And in fact, you know, the studies very much show that you actually need more. And part of it is because plants do not give you complete protein. So what you want to do is you want to kind of overdo things a little bit as it relates to protein so that these incomplete proteins actually turn into a full protein or be more conscious. Maybe you could be open to certain things. You know, I, I see a lot of vegetarians that are open to, um, well, obviously, if you're vegetarian, you know, whey protein is fine. That's a good thing to have. Um, dairy, of course, we, we talk about the positives of dairy. Um, the Especially if you're vegetarian, that's fine. Vegan, obviously, you're going to have to get a little creative, right? 
but but even if you're vegetarian and a lot of college students become exposed to vegetarian and vegan totally cool just know it's just harder right and to hear people say to you that the protein's not important we have to understand what we're trying to do here right and what we're trying to do is build lean mass right if you're in an anabolic stage and your body is building or storing you want it more in the direction of building than storing and protein helps that tell me where i'm wrong <laughs> no you're not i just i i think it's again perspective and understanding of where messaging comes from, I think is super important here. So to understand that um, the USDA, uh, United States Department of Agriculture, which is at the helm of putting out um, and, and the National Institutes of Health, and there's all, you know, a whole group of government agencies that are part of both um, developing the recommended dietary allowances, or the recommended daily intakes, and uh, and then sort of which trickles down to those amounts that you see on nutrition labels. It's a you know that that this food represents 20% of your daily need for a, a calorie intake of 2,000 calories or something for a particular nutrient. To understand, even when we look at the food guide and and how much of the various um, uh, food groups that we should have in our diet, that all that data and rec the recommendations are based on both really good scientific data, uh, nutrition and health data, but also there is anything that comes out of the government or many other areas, and we'll talk about this when it comes to vegan vegetarianism as well, have a political force behind them as well. There's political considerations. And so when the data represents, you know, a certain proportion of protein, fat, and carb in the diet, uh, a government body that gives a recommendation has to balance that scientific data with the need of the farmers and the ranchers that are trying to sell all these different agricultural products. And if they overweight one over another, then it had, may have catastrophic consequences on that side of the agricultural industry. And so unfortunately the USDA has to take into consideration both the mission of uh, the agricultural industry and the nutrition and health mission. They, they are in charge of both and they can be exclusive of each other at times. And so they need to marry those two when they give these guidelines, just as a basis and understanding that none of this information is gospel, it is guidance. Um, and, then, and then to flip it to the vegetarian and vegan community, they also have a messaging that they're trying to push forward. And that is particularly in the vegan community that you don't need animal, animal sources of protein or animal sources of, of any nutrition at all. And so if that's the messaging, then if they, if they go to the, the recommendations for protein intake uh, that 
are science-based, that are health-based, there's always a range, right? We say, well, because we're never talking to an individual, we're, we're talking about a population-based recommendation on a bell curve. So there's one end of the bell curve and the low end and the high end, they're gonna go for the low end because it is much, it is a lot of food to consume to get in all the protein on the high end or the higher side of that bell curve. And so again, um, the where, where Paul and I want to sort of um, encourage you toward the higher end of the protein intake because of all of the benefits that come with that, including a little easier ability to stick to your, your nutrition plan, a little better um, uh, um, caloric burn, a, a better ability to hang on to the muscle that you have, especially while you may be in a lower calorie intake mode, um, there a, a better um, satisfaction of the food that you're eating. You're you have greater satiety. You're a longer stretch where you're not as hungry. Um, the it may that may not build the vegan story uh, as something that's easy to do. And so, so again, it's a little bit of perspective on why there seems to be a dissonance between the recommendations that Paul and I may be talking about and, and what you're reading and a guidance and a mission that you're finding um, philosophically. So Susan just froze on us here. Um, sure. You just froze on us for a second, but I think uh, you were finishing up your point. Yeah, I, I was do, definitely I finishing up. I, we do have a, a vegan athlete that we work with, Anna Olofstadter, um, and she's on Instagram and she talks about eat reform a lot. But the one thing that I want you to notice about Anna on Instagram, if you if you check her out, and you definitely should, um, she eats a lot. I mean, like a lot, a lot, a lot of food. Yeah. I work with vegan athletes also, yeah. and 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 it just it takes a lot of planning. Remember that every single protein source that you consume has fiber in it. So yeah. you get really full and yeah. it's hard to be, you know, sorry, we always talk about to eat fully like you need to and be empty enough to train. And this seems like so much food. It's like, yeah, it is that much food because of the life choice that you're making. Right. right. And so you have to kind of know that going in. Um, so this is number six is, is uh, a guideline, not a rule. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to hear what, what Susan has to say about it, but I'm a proponent of weighing daily, right? Now, does that mean that everyone should weigh daily? Here's the problem with weighing daily, right? For a lot of folks, there's this expectation of what they should weigh and why they should weigh that, right? And if you remove that expectation, and you threw in the other 15 points of data, then you would get a more clear picture of what might be right for you. The problem is, is that you weighed 125 pounds when you were 18, and then post-pregnancy, you wanted to get back to a certain weight, or in the case of a man, he may have been a wrestler in college, um, but, but now he's a 40-year-old 40 per 40 person, 
and they try to reconcile all these various stages of their life, right, with what they should weigh. The simple fact of the matter is, is for most of your life, your body is trying to grow so that you stay here, so that you don't die, right? So that you have <laughs> muscle and all these different things going on. And when we talk about being cognizant of weight, the best way, I mean, studies show this, I'm open to being wrong, but when you are conscious of your weight, you naturally make interventions that you wouldn't make if you're just not conscious, right? And so, so now all of a sudden, you know, you're a college student and, and you go out drinking on a Thursday night because you don't really have classes on Friday. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's Taco Bell for lunch and Domino's for dinner and things of this nature. And so, so now all of a sudden for six months, you don't weigh yourself. All of these habits, right? Good habits and bad habits both become habits. You kind of have to pick, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not making this argument that, that you couldn't do this occasionally, right? Certainly some people would rather do it occasionally. I would argue and I'll argue to the day that I'm proven wrong that I'd rather know the fluctuations of my weight related to the calories that I'm intaking and things of this nature rather than not knowing it because I want to see how my body reacts to my workouts. I want to see how my body reacts to carbohydrates. For women, you know, you want to see how your body reacts to menstruation. So if every time you menstruate, you go, oh, I don't weigh myself for a week because I don't want to know. It's like, well, wouldn't it be better to know that your body goes up anywhere from three to five pounds in that time? And you go, okay, well, I can just subtract that out. I'm good. Mentally, I'm fine. The problem is, is that we have all of these numbers in our head that have nothing to do with Number one, where you're in love with yourself. Number two, where you're active. Number three, where you're eating a high quality of food, where you're getting more sleep, things of this nature, right? So, so we're laying out all of this framework of what a healthy habit life looks like. And then we're saying, but, but you know, if I'm not 131 pounds, this is a deal killer. Like, you know, this, this I, want, I want this to be known. Okay. People say the scale is a dirty, filthy liar. The scale tells you the truth every single day. The scale is your best friend, right? Your best friend should inherently be the person that tells you, hey, look, Susan, you got a little something in your teeth, which you don't, but... Um, <laughs> But, Nobody but, can see anyways. <laughs> yeah, but but like there's a little stain on your shirt. Um, yeah. th that's what your best friend does. The scale is, is your friend in that regard. It's telling you the truth every single time. It's not going to tell you a lie that you would rather hear though, right? And just show me that instance where not knowing is better because... I would argue that 
you, know, you wouldn't need the levels of weight interventions that you're constantly needing because you don't want to know this information, right? And if you knew that information, you would make better decisions as you would go and, and you would start with love and you'd be more active and you, you would have high quality of food and you get more sleep. But, but instead, you're cuddling up to ignorance, right? And once again, I'm not saying that it's a rule, weigh yourself daily, right? It might need to be a guideline for you. And if you have an eating disorder and you have all these other things that are going on, disregard my information and talk to your doctor and then go with your doctor's information. What I'm telling you is from a scientific standpoint, data is always better, right? And if you understand and can interpret that data without the emotion, right? And you can put the emotion over here, you will naturally get to a better place. Okay, I'm dying to know how I'm wrong on this one. Well, so um, easier said than done to detach from yes. your emotions, yeah. right? And so um, if the person is doing one through five and every time they step on the scale, uh, it's telling them the truth and they have attached an emotion to the scale and the number. And when they see that, they stop doing one, then they stop doing two, then they stop doing three because they keep stepping on the scale. There's no advantage to stepping on the scale. Uh, you can have faith in one through five and you don't need six for the person who um, has unhealthy attachments to the numbers on the scale. And there's a lot of those people. And so uh, they may reach being able to get to number six occasionally um, if they need to. But I don't know that you need to be stepping on the scale if you are really successful with one through five. Uh, and in particular, I've told the story before of the Olympic swimmer that I was working with who at uh, uh, 22 years old won a gold medal at a certain body weight. Four years later, she's prepping for the Olympics again and her body weight is much higher. She'd also been training with one of the best strength and conditioning coaches I've ever known and she has put on mass and she, her performance is, is incredible. Yet she gets on the scale and she gets deep into getting on the scale every day and sees her body weight at nowhere near that original gold medal weight. And so stops eating and stops eating carbs. Her performance is plummeting, but she is attached to that number on the scale. And so she has completely disconnected from the thing that really mattered in her life, which was her performance. And she is focused on the number on the scale because that's what the diet world tells her to do. And um, ultimately, fortunately, I was brought in to work with her. And I tell the story of that. I told her to throw the scale off the balcony because it, I asked her, what really matters to you? Why are we doing any of this? Is it really about what you weigh or is it about your performance? You're no longer in that 22-year-old body. You're now in a 26-year-old body. And so, so it, it is a highly individualized issue. 
I agree that for, for certain people, and the data does bear out that for the right people, watching that as a data point where they know that I can go up three or four pounds and I'm fine and I can get it back down again and that's sort of my ceiling and I manage myself through that. And this is a data point along with all the other data points that I have. And I know that if I'm weight training, my body weight may go up. And if I'm eating really well and I'm hydrating really well, my body weight may be a little higher or I'm menstruating and it's going to fluctuate. And they take that as data rather than an emotional trigger that's great, but if it's if it it becomes dysfunctional, um, and they start to hate themselves, <laughs> and so you start to lose number one, and then right, but so so, so I mean, first of all, I'm shaking my head the whole time Susan's talking, so I want everyone to know that, <laughs> right? Um, but but I'm still going to make the argument for priority and expectation, right? So the priority of life is to live a full life, full of joy right? To, to try and pursue happiness as much as you can, right? And, and I would argue that, you know, if, if that number is playing too much of an emo emotional thing, and, and trust me, look, I, I'm human, you know, when my weight is up, I don't love it, right? But I'm able to apply some level of logic. There is a lot of illogical conclusions being made related to weight that are causing people to embrace diet culture, right? Or causing people to embrace, you know, um, this thought process of what it is. You know, if you're looking at a CrossFit Games athlete on Instagram and you're taking advice from them, well, they've got better motivation than you do, right? Because they are trying to win money, right? Playing a game. Mm -hmm. You are a lawyer. You right. are a doctor. <laughs> you are a mom. You know, right. like, the, like your, your expectations need to be different. You know, I always think it's interesting because some of the best, you know, transformations that, that we've ever had when we put those out, you know, um, crickets, you, they, they, they barely get five likes the whole time, but you show somebody that, that went all the way, right. And has abs and, and things of this nature. And that person gets tons of likes. And I kind of get it from a human behavior standpoint. Right. But it just frustrates me as someone who lost lots of weight, who, you know, is very healthy as it relates to going to the doctor and, and all these different things. Um, but I think we do it to ourselves a little bit, right? Where, where if we can manage our expectation of what health, because people, people lie all the time to themselves, right? Like your swimmer lady, um, she kind of wants the cake and eat it too, right? And also, by the way, you know, the men don't have this pressure um, from an influencer standpoint, the way that that women do in, in particular, right? So like Matt Frazier, as an example, he can, he can say that his calories are 9,300, but if Tia Claire Toomey says that her calories are anything more than 2,300, the, the people that give her money don't wanna hear that because the people that give her money 
want to, hey, look, she's athletic, but, you know, she watches her weight. She keeps it all. And then and then you start pursuing logic and you, you're realizing, yeah, 2300 for a, for a very athletic person is probably not reality. So I get why these high level performers feel this pressure, especially as females. Um, but then sometimes, like you said, they act on that pressure, you know, and 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 that can 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 not be, you know, not always be positive. And then, you know, we've talked about this in the past also. They do have a genetic, they can sometimes overcome uh, some negatives. Like if if they are under consuming, maybe they're just that much better than everybody else that they still can win, right? And so I, I really think a lot of it is about controlling expectation. And I, and I do want everyone to know, you know, we don't make you weigh yourself daily. But what I will bring up is if one day you weigh 163 and one day you weigh 167, it sure would be nice to be able to connect how that happened, on which day that went up, and maybe what were the circumstances. And 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 I'm looking at, like I said, the 15 to 20 pieces of data that I'm getting, right? But now all of a sudden, we've taken four of them out, right? Because you didn't add your sodium. We didn't add weight for that day. So I'm kind of guessing on how the 167, and it'd just be better from my standpoint to know which would be better. Right. But not right. everybody so, does. Right. right. And, 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 and you and, and to understand that and to help people along the continuum of un, of going from this hard emotional can, reaction to understanding it's just a piece of data. Yeah. So the last thing on the list and I'm going to argue because the mom coming to me, she's like, tell me how my daughter can overreact to this. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what we do. Right. Like, like, so this is my appeal to you as a teenager, whatever we say to you as adults, you tend to want to rebel, right? As adults, we overreact to the information by and large. This is why we're all on diets. This is why we're all, you know, ultra marathoning and all, all these crazy, crazy things that aren't necessarily needed to manage weight. Don't be us, right? Don't overreact to the data that you're getting or not getting, right? Like when you look at all the things that I'm mentioning, you know, you probably don't know whether or not you're getting eight hours sleep. You know, I'm fairly certain <laughs> you're all in love with yourself because all the selfies on Instagram and Snapchat, it would not exist if you hated yourself, right? So keep that. Keep the part where you 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 are finding the right angle or the right filter or, or things of this nature, but let's get this data in place, but do not overreact. Overreacting is, I would argue, the last piece that we just talked about with the weight is people are overreacting the majority of the time and they have these illogical answers 
two logical problems, right? And that if you peeled it off layer by layer by layer, you'd actually figure out things for yourself. You wouldn't need to talk to Susan. You wouldn't need to talk to me, right? That it's the overreacting is the reason why we're having to write these books, right? If you were looking at it logically, you would go, yeah, when I sleep five hours a night, I just don't have the energy to do anything. So I just kind of lounge around and eat Cheetos and play video games, right? And then all of a sudden, now you get eight to nine hours sleep and you're paddle boarding and you're being active. And oh, by the way, you might be pursuing abs because you're trying to get a mate if you're a male or a female you know, would have similar motivations, right? Like at that age, the, um, I, I just think it's really important that you keep rational thought into it. You're in college, right? The whole point of college, most of what you will learn in college, you will forget. The thing that you were at college for is to learn to learn. I'm suggesting to you, this is how you learn to learn, not overreacting. And it shocked the mom when I said that, right? Because from her perspective, she's like, is there a cleanse she can do? Is there, you know, all this and that. And, and you know, a lot of people have these preconceived notions about what you and I think, right? And the reality is, is it's not that, you know, it, it's much more logical it's much more thought through it's like like what decision have you ever made in your life that is better around chaos right everything that you can start to peel away you can actually add more logic to the situation right the more chaos you bring to that situation the more likely you are to come up with the wrong answer and so the reason why people start dieting at such a young age, especially young women, right, is because of the pressures that we're talking about, because of these ideas that, frankly, I think we're, we're chipping away at, right? I mean, there's, you know, everyone talks about the, 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 the female images on Instagram and things of this nature. But the female images on Instagram also are showing a lot of women lifting weights and they're showing a lot of women climbing mountains and, and things of this nature in a way that is empowering to women differently than it's ever done in any period of time. Seeing, and, and, and certainly men also, but men always kind of had those pressures, right? Women are defining themselves differently and that's a relatively recent idea, right? And so what I want you to understand is that your parents did not have the information that you have, right? They're not exposed to the level of learning that you are currently learning, right? And so I just want you to view yourself as an experiment that can be figured out, right? And, and certainly we talked about a therapist, we talked about loving yourself and all these other things. If you're struggling, 
with those pieces, do not assume that weighing less fixes that. In fact, scientifically, without question, right, the opposite is almost always true. It messes, like Susan said earlier in the podcast, it messes with your brain chemistry. It messes with how you feel about yourself, right? You might think that you need to weigh 120, but realistically, your body might be set up at 140. I think it's helpful at least to look at your parents and go, what do they look like? You know, especially if they're relatively fit, you know, I mean, my, my wife, who I talked about, Swedish farm girl, she looks more like her dad than she does her mom, right? And she really looks like her grandma, right? And, and I just think that for most of us, it's helpful to look at that, right? It's helpful to go... You know, because these are people that you usually have a lot of fondness for, right? You, you don't think of your grandmother and, and think of her as not a beautiful person, right? If you're a descendant of that beautiful person, then you get to be beautiful, right? And oh, by the way, you get to be beautiful wherever you are. If you start from beauty, if you start from love, you know, the one thing that I said in the article that I really think is, is, is so true is that when you pursue happiness and when you pursue love that attraction attracts a similar type thing right and the opposite is also true right and so you don't want to find yourself in this hole of hate hole of 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 apathy hole of you know um negativity that's just all consuming at times right and so, so you, you do have a choice. Like one of the things that I said the other day that really resonated is every day you, you, give, you have a choice. You get to choose whether you're going to be a superhero or a supervillain, right? And you should choose to be a superhero for yourself every single day, right? Now, some days you're going to be a supervillain, right? But just choose the superhero more, right? And so that'll be the last thing I say. Um, Susan, any thoughts on, on, on what I just said? Yeah, I like what you just said. I don't need to say anything else. <laughs> okay, so we'll end on that note. Hopefully everybody appreciates it. Next time we will hear from you um, or you will hear from us. We'll be 2021. And, and as you might expect, I think Susan and I are actually excited about 2021, right? Um, I see a lot of people talking about, you know, oh man, 2020 was so bad, right? There was a lot of opportunity. A lot of people took the, the chance to better themselves in 2020 also, right? If, if you were stuck and you didn't, weren't able to do that because, you know, life was all consuming, 2020 is 2021 is going to be an opportunity for you right and so every day you get that choice right and you just want to choose that choice more you know and if you need to 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 view 2021 that way i would encourage you to highly do it and all the people that tell you that new year's resolutions don't matter and you're going to fail and things of this nature let me tell you something the guy that you're listening to 
made a New Year's resolution that changed his life completely, right? Whatever hope you need, pursue that hope, right? And and I just really think that that's super important. So happy belated Hanukkah, Susan. Um, happy holidays to everybody that that's listening and Merry Christmas. Um, it's it's my favorite time of the year. Um, they're just always a level of hope out there. And so so let's let's build on that for 2021 and let's let that be our goal. Talk to everybody later. Bye now. Bye-bye.